Hello, I'm Alice Dubois and I'm delighted to welcome you to the podcast of the Postdoc Development Center from Queen's University Belfast, the theory of the postdoc evolution. This is the second part of a two-parter episode on lectureship recruitment and if you haven't listened to episode number four yet, I would advise you to do so first as both really complement each other. The discussion you are going to listen to was recorded in front of an audience of postdoc in February 2020 and it involved four panelists. Two are academics involved in recruiting lectures, Professor Aaron Moll, who is Dean of Research in the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Life Sciences, and Dr. Karen McCutcheon, who is the Director of Education in the School of Nursing and Midwifery. The other two panelists are new lecturers who recently went through the whole process themselves, Dr. Donna Small and Dr. Paul McVeigh. In the previous episode, we discussed lectureship positions, the recruitment process and the profile of the ideal candidate. Here, we are going to explore a bit more the experience of Donna and Paul, discussing their profile at the time when they applied, look at application documents and interviews, as well as how to, as a postdoc, get to the stage when you are competitive to apply. So in this second part, we'll first look, now that we've described a little bit the ideal candidate, to see if Donna and Paul's profile was actually one of the (laughs) ideal candidates. Uh, So... Can you first give us a flavor of the stage of career you were at when you got your lectureship? So how many years had you been a postdoc before? Had you applied for other positions? Uh, Where did you fit within your career? Uh, So I finished my PhD in uh, January 2012 and started a postdoc position uh, in what would have been the Center of Infection and Immunity at the time. and I was in a position there for about two and a half years when I kind of felt I wanted to go back to my, my PhD area, which was uh, cancer biology. So I had a, a chat with my line manager at the time and I said, you know, whilst I like working in the lab and working for you, I kind of feel my research focus and where I want to go uh, needs to kind of change. So that kind of left me with the options of applying for fellowships. So uh, I applied for a fellowship to the Medical Research Foundation, which was the MRC's charity, when I was literally eligible to apply. So they had a criteria where you had to have a minimum of three years postdoc experience. So I literally just had three years and no more. Um, And I put in the application um, and it got funded. And then I delayed the start date of my fellowship until uh, 2016. So I'd done about four years of a postdoc um, with the same line manager and then started my fellowship in October 2016 and then got the, the lectureship in 2018. Okay, and had you applied for other positions before? Not lectureships, no. That was my very first application as a you know, for a lectureship position. As I said at the at the start, I was very much focused on fellowship applications. So I was tailoring my CV more for external um, fellowships. So that was primarily focusing on papers because I felt that's kind of what they would be looking for is the outputs. And we had a paper that was kind of taking a long time to get published and it was, it was a pretty high-impact paper. So that was kind of where I was at with with waiting for for a paper. Okay, and you, Paul? 
So yeah, I um, I was a longer term postdoc. I completed my PhD in two thousand and four, actually. So I was close to fifteen years in research, um, and had moved to a, a senior research fellow position um, in twenty sixteen, um, and then. That was giving me a bit more independence um, around the research that I was doing, kind of more input in, in running the lab, um, a bit more teaching. Um, and um, so, and then during that, so during all that time, I'd been working across multiple different contracts, um, you know, various different areas of research in parasitology. So, from drug discovery through vaccinology to um, neurobiology, so a range of different things, gaining a lot of different experience in different areas. Um, I also got a bit of independent funding. I got a, an award from the Gates Foundation in 2013 that um, really started me on the road to independence and the, the field of research that I'm interested in now. So that was kind of fortuitous. That was around um, some of the reading I was doing at the time was around diagnostics. And they put out a call for novel diagnostic methods that I applied for and, and got the funding for that. That allowed me to supervise a postdoc um, in the lab alongside my own research. Um, and that's still the kind of research area that I'm interested in now. So that was kind of how I think that that played a big big part in, in differentiating me from from other candidates. I think at, at, at the interview. Yeah. And was this your first application? No, I had this. I had made five previous applications to that previous to this one. Um, a couple of those were train wrecks. I'll admit. Um, some of them I performed well in, but was maybe ranked second or third, um, just missed, just narrowly missed out. Um, yes, they were for lectureships and actually one application to the fellowship program here as well. Yeah. Okay, and so what do you think makes the difference between those applications that didn't work out and then maybe uh, that one that was successful? Did you have a change in the way you approached how you were <clears throat> doing your research? Did you try to develop that independence a bit more or... What did you um, do? Well, a big part of it was was interview help from yourself, Elise. You know, that's, <laughs> just to put a thank plug you, for the, the PDC. Um, uh, I think actually a, a big part was that the um, the interview process was different this time round. That um, the there was I think this is an institutional um, change now. Is that lectureship applications now do a um, like a twenty minute presentation to the department. Um, and then there's an additional interview on top of that, where previously it was maybe a five-minute presentation to the panel. Um, I think that played more to my strengths um, in presentation skills. Um, I think that maybe bumped me higher up the pecking order or the, the shortlisting than it would have previously been. Um, and, yeah, so I think that's what made the difference this time around. Okay. So... You kind of both slightly answered my next question, but I'm not going to ask it anyway. So how did you decide uh, which research area you were going to pursue, and how did you demonstrate your ability to lead that independent research? So for you, Donna, it was more uh, the fellowship application yeah. and going back to mixing kind of your PhD subject and your postdoc subject. Yeah, yeah I think I knew kind of, you know, when I was postdoc and I was second year or third year at the time that, I, you know, I wanted to move back more to my, my PhD research uh, background. Um, now, I was very fortunate in that 
we, you know, we were chatting about what the university wants, but I would also say, you know, also look at what funders are, you know, putting calls out for. That can be also a very big driver at where universities are going as well. And at the time, you know, there was that call in respiratory medicine from uh, the Medical Research Foundation with a focus on a particular type of cancer, uh, pleural mesothelioma. So I took a, a big gamble in kind of making that where I would want to go with my research niche, purely because the UK had the highest death rates in the world. So I knew it was kind of something that, yeah, look, I could tap into. I also then to try and ascertain independency, because as an internal candidate, you know, you really have to stand aside from your, your PI at the time, um, and I wanted to make sure that I had that clear visibility. And I suppose it was, again, largely driven because of what funders would have been looking for in fellowship applications. So I, I kind of angled it more towards immunobiology. I seen the gap in Queen's because we didn't have kind of tumour immunobiology, um, not only in the centre that I worked at at the time, but also in the cancer centre. So, you know, I spent a lot of time reading and, and writing and trying to come up with pilot data and, you know, thinking how can I make this research area my own. Uh, and I would actually say speak to your colleagues, speak to the senior um, academics in the department and other departments. Um, you know, they can give you very useful uh, advice. It, sometimes it might feel very constructive and you think, oh, I'm not going to do this now, but actually I have always kind of went with the approach of, right, that's great, thank you very much, and, and go on from that. So that's where I was at with independency, and, and it, it worked. Um, you know, yes. it got funded. And actually, for your lectureship, you moved from one centre to another? Yeah, and again, I think that was also a, a, a massive um, bonus for me, was actually moving centres. Um, it, it may as well have been moving to a different university, um, because the two centres work so differently. <laughs> Even if they're next door to each other. Yeah, they're joined. Um, but that was that was actually fantastic because it then meant I was shifting, you know, the critical mass that I once would have worked with in one centre to a, a different centre. So that in itself is opening, opening up more opportunities for collaborations and networking with, you know, new colleagues, even if we were in the same university. So that actually has been a massive, massive help as well. Yes, and so for you, Paul, you said it was uh, using um, that senior research fellow position as uh, an opportunity to develop a little bit of your own research interest in that grant that you got from the Gates Foundation. Uh, was there anything else? that? How do you decide what you wanted to work on? Because that's the question I get a lot from uh, postdocs who are applying for this type of positions. They want the position but are not sure what their research for life should be and how to decide that. So what's your experience of this? I mean, that's a tough question. I, um, I would echo what, what Donna said. Is that it's, it, as an internal candidate, the most important thing is setting yourself apart from um, not only your PI but the rest of the department as well. Um, and that's some of the feedback I got from my presentation was that I clearly did that. So I, I went to Payne's my presentation to set out, you know, what the department worked on, how what how what I wanted to do, to do was different to that, but then also the potential collaborations, how I would feed in with um, with what was already going on, um, which is a really important thing. Um, <clears throat> in terms of de deciding what you're going to work on, I mean, I guess for most people it's kind of fortuitous, you know, it's 
um, it's it's you, you 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 get a bit of luck, you get some funding, and it's that's tends to be what you work on. You know, I mean, I think um, it, it can be. You know, I think it, I think it, it does depend around a large part around luck, kind of where the money comes from. You make a start in that area, maybe you end up moving into slightly different areas from that. Um, but yeah, it's yes. But I guess setting yourself aside from the rest of the research, but complementing it in some way and bringing something else that's going to make the research that's already done even better than what it is. Exactly. So whether that's you know a new research area or new technologies, you know, you can show how they help. Um, the other areas of research in, in the department, um, yeah. Okay. And in terms of teaching experience, what type of teaching experience did you have at the time you applied for, for these positions? Yeah, so I was involved in uh, tutorials for the first-year medical students um, during my postdoc and, and also during my fellowship uh, time, which is small group tutorials, 20 students, um, helping them to develop essays, work through biochemistry problems. It's very, very much uh, connecting with the students, which I enjoy. I like, you know, more smaller group um, teaching. And also I developed new lecture material and recorded lecture material for the pharmacy degree, but mostly for the students that were in China. Um, so that would have been my experience at the time of application. And you, Paul? Yeah, I had a good bit of um, teaching experience. Um, I had been teaching quite a few lectures per year um, for most of my postdoc career. Um, but actually, funny enough, it was a, in a lectureship interview that I did in 2016, and there was a question, you know, what's your teaching experience? And I said, well, you know, it's like whatever it was, six hours a year or something. And I looked over at the person who asked the question and I saw a raised eyebrow. I thought, right. Um, and then also at that same interview, there was a question about administration, administrative experience. I didn't really have a strong answer for that. So those two things from that point really um, motivated me to get more teaching experience and more administrative experience. So from that point, I kind of went looking for it. And at that time, there was um, a call for people to contribute to tutorials in the in the School of Medicine to, to medical undergrads. Um, I did some of those. Um, I also started teaching some practicals, um, practical classes, which I developed from scratch, um, and also marking some elements of continuous assessment on, on one of the largest undergrad modules in biological sciences. So there, there are, I guess, the message there is that there are opportunities. Um, if you want to get involved in teaching, you know, it's not going to come to you. You've got to go looking for it. Um, and in, in many cases, lecturers will be happy to offload some of their teaching time to you. Um, but, you know, you've got to go and ask and, and ask around and, and actually actively look for it. Um, and, yeah, I think the more you have, the better. There's a, there's a certain point at which, you know, obviously you're doing too much because it takes away from your research. But, but the more you can get and the more diverse different kinds of teaching experience you, you can get experience in, then that's all for the better, I think. Yes, and I guess in addition to that, classroom uh, type teaching you also supervise students because you're both of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. lab based you, type we've yeah. all, uh, I'd say everyone in this room does a lot of day to day supervision of undergrads yeah. and, and the postgrads so yeah that all counts towards the teaching aspect yeah, so do, yeah. do you detail that in, in CVs and in, and in yeah. interviews that is important Yes, and you started touching on this, Paul, but which type of administrative or leadership activities had you been involved in when you had applied? 
lucky. And yes, yeah, so I, as I say, I at that point I actively went went looking for it because you know as a postdoc is not a great deal. It immediately seems obvious that you can get involved in administratively. I mean, your um, you know grant management fund fund management is is important, and, and you should mention that. Um, you know, if you're if you're involved in in you know managing equipment or training people on certain on bits of equipment, that's that's important as well. Um, but actually, the postdoc society is a really good place to get experience in in, in committee work, um, which is which is where I went. So I I went along um, and served as a member of the postdoc society for a year, and then um, the, the time came for the, the chair to change, and I volunteered to serve as co-chair um, and did that for a year. Um, and that's just that's a really good way to get experience in, in working on committees, uh, working in teams, you know, trying to be being persuasive and um, and motivational. Um, a lot of academic work, a lot of the university is is run by committees, people sitting around a table, um, you know, coming up with with ideas and plans. You know, so it's it's really important to be able to demonstrate that you can do that, or that you have got at least a little bit of experience in doing that. And you, Donna? Yeah. So. Again, part of the fellowship application um, that I was writing at the time, I needed uh, to have internal ethics. So I had to write up an ethics application to, you know, to conduct some of the work. And then once I got the, the fellowship, um, you know, I needed to drive my own area of research. So that meant I needed to write up my own project license for the in vivo modeling. Um, and also then, because I wanted to use some samples from a biobank um, in England, I had to write up an MTA, so you know, um, development contracts and working with the contracts team in, in Queens. So that was quite a quite a large volume of admin work. And then also, other aspects of, of leadership and administration was getting involved with more external um, committees is really important. I would say as our internal ones. So again, moving into that area of, of plural mesothelioma, I was invited to be a member of the British Lung Foundation's. Um, first uh, research organising committee uh, which was really uh, very useful and I found that really good because again then you're, you're working with researchers across the UK um, I also was asked to be involved um, in reviewing abstracts for the European Respiratory Society which is a huge uh, conference uh, centred around respiratory medicine again that's you know was all helpful um, in building up the CV and then also as Paul was highlighting you know the internal committee memberships are pretty pretty important as well I was part of the uh, you know member of the faculty postdoc society and then also the internal uh, centre-based societies and organising symposiums and you know chairing symposiums you know it's it's all about you know rounding up your your yourself as a, as a candidate um, and, and getting yourself involved and as, as many things as possible and, and just showing that you're you're ambitious, this is what you want, this is what you want to achieve, um, and and working with all the colleagues involved in it. And so sorry, Paul, yeah. No, I, think, yeah. I think sometimes as as a postdoc there's a tendency to think to look at your roles and think, Oh, I'm I'm just a postdoc, I can't do that, or they're looking for academic. But in a lot of cases that's that's not the case and you can get involved. So as as Donna said, like um, you know, external societies um, are quite often willing to take you on as a, as, as a you know, council member, for example, or um, you know, journal editorial board membership. These are all things that you can do, um, and that you know, between us, we have done. 
Um, but again, you've got to go looking for them. You know, if you, it's, and, and, and these are the things that will set you apart in, in applications. Is showing that you're proactive and you and you're, you you see the importance of all these extra administrative um, roles. So that's actually the perfect transition to my next question, which is, uh, what do you think made the difference between you and the other candidates? Did you hear from your panel about that, or do you um, have any idea? So I, I bumped into two members that were on my panel after the interview and after um, positions were appointed, um, and the feedback that I got from both those um, panel members was that I gave an excellent interview, and I had my own niche already established um, within the university so they could see exactly where I was going to go and how I was progressing. Um, so that was the feedback I got. You, Phil, did you get any feedback? Well, actually, I actually didn't seek feedback at that time because <laughs> I was like, you know, who cares? I've got the job. <laughs> but um, um, no, it's some being flippant. Um, but uh, some of the some of the people from the department who were at the presentation that I gave did say that it was clear that I um, had a very clear view of where I fitted. I've mentioned this already into the department, um, the, the research I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, because I, and, and, I set out, you know, my first three grant applications and where the funder, um, the, the collaborators and the, the title and a bit of a synopsis as well. So I think, yeah, it was just about the kind of focus and clarity of the application for me, really. Okay. Well, thank you. Now we've looked at your profile. We're going to move on to the next topic, which would be the actual application documents and the interview, which we've already kind of discussed. So we'll do that uh, maybe a bit quickly. Uh, but to get additional information about that, so Aaron and Karen, it's going to be your turn again. Um, so first... How long do you roughly spend on each application at the shortlisting stage? I think in the, in, in the sector, the word of mouth is that panel members spend 30 seconds to maximum one minute per application. Yes, indeed. In the first kind of glance, how, do you, how does that work for you? Well, it's not one minute for me. <laughs> Certainly not one minute. Um, you're, you're, you have to find the essential criteria. That's very important. And you're also at that stage looking for something unique or something that sort of, um, you know, something different, some characteristic that makes that person different as well. So you're looking for the desirable criteria, even though, so you look for essential first. And that, if you've got essential, that's, that's great. And then you start looking for the desirable criteria within that as well. It's not that you will get, not get shortlisted if you don't meet the desirable, but it's nice to get, you, you really do want to have an understanding of, of the person that would be coming for interview. So certainly it would not be one minute. Um, I don't know how to measure it. At 15, half, 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, maybe, maybe longer depends on how many you know if we have 30 40 applicants applying and we have a morning to do it do the maths I mean it just depends on on the on the time commitment you have well the amount of time <coughs> will vary on the application so if you have an application in which just as my earlier example was around having a PhD is essential and on the first page they clearly indicate they have no PhD you don't need to spend more than a minute um, however, for most applications which do meet the essential criteria, you're, you're at least 10 minutes, at least. 
and then those that are maybe the most compelling might take more time because you're trying to differentiate them even further. Um, so, I, you know, 30 seconds or one minute per application is not a fair reflection, I don't think, of anyone's reviewing because I think it's impossible. But there would be instances where that is viable, uh, where the application on the first page is clearly not, uh, not um, eligible. Okay, and is there anything that you find really irritating in applications? It's your opportunity, at least from the people in the room and the people who are listening to get rid of those irritating things. Um, one of the things that have become more, um, I've noticed more recently, is these agencies that people sign up to and they just uh, put in applications or CVs that have not, be, they haven't, the, the candidate hasn't looked at the job so they've just put in a CV that hasn't uh, been shaped around the job that you're applying for. So that irritates me. Yes. Yeah. Being over verbose with irrelevant information, um, you know, not, not, again, tailoring your application. I think that is absolutely spot on. I, I also find probably one of my particular bugbears are CVs that are really hard to negotiate. And, Typical examples, lists of papers not chronological. And the first thing that flags up to any reader is, why would they do that? <laughs> you know why? Maybe to show that maybe a few years have been less productive, but they don't want you to find that easily. That's the first thought is a negative thought. So I would say, you know, you, you should think about how you present yourself. It needs to be clear. Um, I would say, you know, <clears throat> signpost your CV. Sometimes we get the CVs and and they're so dense, you, you're looking for something that's simple and you can't find it, and you know, the harder you have to work at that, the slightly more irritated you are by that. Now, that won't sway your overall decision. It shouldn't anyway. But it, you know, it shapes panels if they're looking at 150 applications, and this one's incredibly hard to negotiate. It's not maybe going to get as good a score as it would have if it had been really well tailored to that post. Yes, and, and I guess that's pragmatism. You might miss the actual information yeah, if it's potentially, lost. Potentially, potentially. Hopefully, the other panel members yeah. would spot it. You know, because there's multiple panel members. But you know, I do think it's important to put. If you don't put effort in, why should the reviewer? Yes. So if you go for a quick questions about CV. So if you exclude the publication list, how long is the ideal academic CV for this type of position? I think you've lost me after two pages, two to three pages. It needs to, for me, it needs to be snappy. Um, I don't like big paragraphs of, of words. I'd rather have snappier sentences or bullet points. But yeah, no, no, I, I would agree. I mean, generally, the shorter the better. But obviously, if you've done a lot of stuff, mm. then it isn't a matter of cramming it into two pages. It would h highlight that. Signpost, make sure you know you have a header that's easy to find that clearly states what's below so that people can just go through your CV and look for education, look for administration, look for funding, look for other things, you know, engagement, public engagement or teaching in, in schools or whatever it is, so that they don't have to work really hard to find that, I would say. I, I don't know about an ideal length. I mean, yes, I agree, short and two pages is quite typical. Um, I do like things like a mission statement that, that's succinct, clear, uh, but yeah, a lot of verbose paragraphs saying how great you are without evidencing that isn't helpful. Yes, so that kind of answers my next question, with, with, which was uh, paragraphs are 
bullet points. So I think we go for bullet points and clear achievement and clear actual evidence more than generally these. Yeah. Yes. Um, a question that I often get to is, should candidates include papers that are in preparation, so not yet submitted? Yeah, I certainly have been in situations at shortlisting with colleagues who are irritated by it. It doesn't irritate me as long as it's clear, and that's what it comes back to. So you would have them signposted, papers submitted. They generally don't get a lot of interest, but what would happen is at interview you would be asked to update. So therefore, you know, having it there will trigger that question that might then draw out something that wouldn't have come out naturally. So from that point of view, I think it is useful. But don't mix them in with your published papers or, the, you know, or, or papers that are, that are different years. Make sure they're all in chronological order and clearly signposted. Yes. Nowadays, it's, um, you, know, you, could, you, could, you could, it's, it's okay, I think, to include papers that are on some of the online archives, like BioArchive, so preprint server. Um, where at least that shows that you have a substantive piece of work that you've put together and it's not just a, a title that you're sticking in your CV. Yes, because in preparation can mean exactly. everything from <laughs> in, <here>. yes. yeah. <laughs> in the head to, yes. I wonder though, is, is there a, a university um, perspective no, on that? No they... specific policy. I think, I mean, the BioArchive, I would agree with Paul there, I think. But what that does provide is the opportunity for an interested panel member to delve more deeply into your recent work see what actually are you doing in there yes and another question that I often get uh, should candidates include either the grants or fellowship applications that didn't get funded 100% I think no activity in that area is much much worse than failure fellowships are really hard to get some fellowships are you know like hen's teeth really really competitive so applying and not getting them is not that big a negative you know many people who apply for prestigious fellowships are knocked back most people are actually um, so showing that you're proactive and ambitious enough to apply for them I think is an important plus point okay so if we talk a little bit about cover letters again maybe roughly how long do you expect the cover letter to be because I've seen everything from one page to ten pages uh, in the cover letter that I that I get uh, I know my uh, advice to Pozok usually is that a cover letter should be a bit like an amuse bush like a little uh, starter or how do you say it yeah a little little nibble that you get before the mail that you have it's small it's short snappy it doesn't fill you up and it has a few key flavors in it that make you want <laughs> the main course. Oh, sorry, I'm French. I love food. <laughs> but, um, and so that it should not repeat everything that's on the CV, and it should yeah. be a few key uh, achievements that, that you're really proud of and are really relevant. But what's your intake on that? Yeah, I, I, as you've just described, as a hook <laughs> to make the reviewer want to read more deeply, I think that's a good thing. One to ten pages, if I had a preference in either or, it clearly would be one. But if you have a list of essential criteria that you can't articulate in one page, it may be more. Um, so I think you know, frame your, your narrative around the criteria without listing what's in your CV signposted. You know, I have recent publications that are in very high-impact journals and that are well-cited that I have led. You don't need to then... Uh, list those, those are already in your CV. So don't, don't be repetitive, but it's okay to make statements like that. 
And, and I think just to add, it is important that cover letter. Um, if you have done something, you know, why do you deserve the job? You know, why do you deserve an interview? So if you've got something unique, put it in there at the start. Yes, as a positive, uh, and make sure your grammar and your spelling is is good, <laughs> and that we can read it. You know, it needs to because it, it, I'm sure most of you have looked at um, assessments or you've looked at students' work and. You start to get a bit annoyed the more you see the same spelling mistake the whole way. You know, so make sure it's 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 something that's clean. Yes, and I guess sometimes the cover letter can be the occasion for the candidate or the opportunity for the candidate to talk a little bit about the research they want to be developing. Because sometimes the CV is more about what they've done, but not what they will do in the future. So is it something that you look for? I think that's very important to to provide a clear narrative around your fit. And the you know the added value that you would bring in that position into that department or school. Okay, so Paul and Donna, Paul, you mentioned a little bit uh, your interview before, but can you give us a little bit of an idea of the setting of your interview? Was it a presentation, a short presentation, a big presentation, a discussion with the panel? How did it? How what was the the format of it, and how did it feel? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yes, I think I, I think I mentioned this already. Is that I was um, one of the first, I think, in the in the faculty certainly to go through a this kind of different setup of, of interview, which is a, a longer um, presentation to the department. And in, in practice, that turned out to be um, I think about forty or so people. Certainly, it's like a forty capacity room. It seemed quite full at the time. Um, they were um, that was comprised of, of academics um, and postgraduate students and postdocs, um, and so I gave the presentation. And there was, I think, a couple of set questions, um, and then and then sort of extra questions from the from the um, from the audience. And then so the interview panel were there, and then later on that day had the, the formal interview itself, where you know the panel referred back to to what it said. Um, and then asked, obviously, additional interview questions around that. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I was asked to give a 10-minute presentation. It was a preset titled um, presentation, which I had to s submit prior to the interview to HR. And then I was interviewed by a panel of six who were all senior members of the centre and then also the head um, the school, Pascal. So he was the chair and he very much led um, the interview and then centre director and then four senior um, senior colleagues. So it was very formal. It can be uh, daunting, you know, if you're not used to going through the interview process. They all have set questions um, and they will ask their questions, but they will ask, ask questions that are not set, you know, if they want to you know, to probe you further on something, um, which did happen during my interview. So. so following up on that, Aaron and Karen, when you're interviewing candidates, um, what do you try to assess in them that's kind of different than what you look at on their CVs and applications? Um, well, you're looking for attributes. So someone that comes in and does a very flat presentation um, and doesn't try and be engaging or show enthusiasm or motivation would um, sort of put you on, um, you know, lean you further back and not be as interested in that person. So that, you know, the first impressions do count. So whenever you do go in, 
you do have to smile. Um, do try and engage the, the committee or the panel that are interviewing you. Um, and for lectures education, it sometimes can be quite difficult if you're coming along to uh, an interview to um, be completely focused on your research because that then it, it, it makes you inflexible or it shows an inflexibility. So it's about, yes, you have got this research, but you are flexible and you are able to, to do all manner of different things that will fit nicely with what um, the, the job is, is looking for. So um, yeah, the leadership as well would be another thing. Um, you know, have you got leadership experience or can you command and be, show attributes of leadership? So it is, you are looking for other things um, in the interview. You certainly don't want someone to just give one word answers. And we've also, I think, I've sat in interviews where people have just given yes, no answers. And it's so frustrating when you know that the person has more in there to give. But um, that would be my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with all of that. I would add that being over verbose is equally bad, you know, and you should be aware of that. It, it is, again, amazing the number of people that are not. You know, if a chairman comes in and said, OK, we have to move on, that means the panel is, is tired of listening to you going on and you're, <laughs> you're not telling them anything new. So that should be a real alarm call to you. you we need to be punchy with our answers. So smart answers um, that, that, that address the question, that don't go off paste, OK, so that stay on the point. Um, I do like personally, and I know others, some others do this, is like to push the candidate a little bit. Quite often, especially around the research, um, you know, quite often they will say that, oh, this is a totally new area, or you know, this is going to make me fit. And you know, say, well, how? What makes it new? I look that up, and I can see a thousand papers here over the last two years. What makes what you're doing different? You know, can you articulate that? And also the context piece, where that sits in the broader research. Uh, viewfinder, you know, how you link to other areas and what other opportunities you see in you being inculcated into that, that unit or that, that um, school. I think all of those things are critically important. Okay, so we're, we've talked about the application process, what's expected from candidates. So now let's uh, have a look at how to get ready for this. Uh, so first, if you're at that stage when you're ready to apply, how do you uh, get feedback on your application, on your research plan, your CV, your cover letter? Like Donna and Paul, who did you ask uh, a couple of years ago, or more, even more recently, when you went at that stage? So the first thing I'd done, um, and again it was the CV for fellowship applications, I actually got my CV um, looked at externally. So I sent my CV off to a senior lecturer in the Beetson Institute, and then also we had Liz Elbridge over from Imperial. Um, and when she went back to Imperial, I sent her my CV as well. So that was the first thing that I found very helpful was to have my CV externally uh, critiqued. Um, and it's amazing the, the feedback you get. You know, Just the small things can make a massive difference on your CV because as the panel were mentioning, you know, they might have 40, 50 CVs to flick through and they want to see the, that information very quickly. Um, so that was very helpful. Um, what I did start to do then was talk to the centre, uh, senior figures, about how best I would fit, how best I could adapt my research uh, in the present 
time, but also then going forward. Because, yes, whilst you want to have a project that'll fit the now, you're not going to do the now for the next 30 years. So there has to be a bit of adaptability in your research and, and flexibility. So that's very important. Um, and also finding good mentors. I cannot stress the importance of good mentors. And I'm not talking about the structured formal mentors. I'm talking about the informal mentors as well. That's really important. And I would also stress internal and external candidates for that as well. They can give you really, really insightful feedback um, and and help you start the ball rolling in shaping your application, in shaping your, your research message and the question that you want to answer. So that's what I done. You know, I, I spoke to a lot of people. And I would say, don't be afraid to do that. I think we kind of hold back a wee bit and we're like, no, you know, I, don't do, I won't do that. But I would actually say that's the most important part. And you, Paul, how did you get feedback on your applications and the research you wanted to develop? So, I mean, as, as I said, this wasn't my first rodeo. I had been applying for, for stuff for a good while. So I felt like my CV was in a pretty good shape. Um, and, but, you know, previously I'd had... Um, you know, my PI and other members of the department look look over it, obviously, um, and give comments. Um, and actually, seeing some of their CVs was, if you can ask and, and, and see what 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 an academic's CV looks like, really helped me. Um, but then, in the run up to this application, obviously, I mean, I ran it by the, the PBC, um, and that was very helpful as well. Get sort of a, a fresh pair of eyes on it. Um, so yeah. Yes, and. Just to remind uh, our audience, if you're lucky enough to be a postdoc at Queen's University Belfast, you've got a postdoc development centre who would review your CV for you. And that's me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Bit of self-promotion there. Uh, And how did you prepare for your interview? Mock interview, mock interview, mock interview. They're vital. Um, I had three mock interviews, one with yourself. It was actually the, the first one ever oh, for the PDC. Yes. Um, and then I had an internal centre-based interview with uh, senior academics and then had an outside-the-centre um, interview as well. So they are unbelievably important. They really get you thinking of how to construct your answers succinctly. Um, because you have a time frame, you know, to go in and interview, and you need to deliver the message clearly, quickly, and answer everything the right way. So I would say mock interviews. Yeah, agreed. Um, I did a mock interview with the PDC as well. It was it was very very helpful um, because although you know I did a lot of practicing at home with, with having my wife ask me questions and things, you know, it doesn't recreate. The, the pressure of sitting ac- across the table from four or five other people, you know, who are looking at you while you're answering. That's, that's a unique environment, and, 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 and you do need to try to recreate that in some way. So, yeah, mock interview. Um, beyond that, just, you know, um, you know, there are lots of online resources on, on academic interview questions that you can use to prepare for. Um, I think, do, does the PDC have a, an online resource on that? I'm not sure. Not on the interview specifically, no. but as we provide the mock interviews, they use, we use questions that, mm-hmm. for example, you get submitted after your interview. Mm-hmm. So we know that those are questions that are actually being asked for those type of, of positions. But as you say, either through Vitae or, or a yeah. lot of other websites, you get uh, the 
candidates often get back to me to say, oh, the questions I got were very similar to yours. How did mm -hmm. you know? Because they're just always looking at the same topics, and those are the essential criteria and the, the job requirements, and you need to demonstrate that you can do those. So I think the types of questions would all will always be very uh, similar in some way. I don't know if, Aaron and Karen, you've got that experience too. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the, there's skill, key skills and attributes that we're trying to pick out of an interview. Um, and what's very important is that you bring your uniqueness into answering those. So it's not that, oh, I'm a good communicator. Well, why are you a good communicator? Show, give an example of how you've shown that you're a good communicator or you know, doing something different, something that um, has, can show that rather than just saying it. In an interview. I mean, I will just add around the interview narrative. Um, I'm going back to personal experience. You might think, how can he remember? Somehow I can remember 27 years ago better than what I can last week. That's the <laughs> thing that happens with age. So it's like it was yesterday. And I rem still remember the first interview. I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but the research area I was doing, I felt I knew better than anyone on the planet at the time. And I, it sounds awful to say that. I even still went into that and was told by my mentor that was a train wreck, Aaron, and you need to wise up and you need to prepare answers for all sorts of different questions that come at you because you just went into waffle mode anything that got off research so that was a real lesson so I did and, and I felt when I went to the second one that I couldn't think of a question they could ask me that I didn't know what I was going to say and that made it was so it felt easy let's just say it felt easy and I think that's because I was so prepared you know, and it worked out positively. So preparation is important. Yes, definitely. So now that we talk about preparing for the application when you're at that stage, how do you actually know you're ready to apply? You're at that stage when you would be competitive. How can you assess your competitiveness for those positions? Seek advice from mentor. Um, seek advice from other academics. I think uh, look at the criteria. I mean, Postdocs are all intelligent people, so it's not hard to look at the criteria and see, you know, do I stack up here? Am I hitting uh, the money on most of these points or all of them, hopefully? Um, that tells you if you're ready. Um, I would encourage people to be ambitious with applications. I mean, you shouldn't make spurious applications where you've clearly no hope, but those where you might aspire to be in a few years, you think you're not quite there, I think it's useful going making those applications, because you get the feedback from the panel. And generally, just going back to an earlier point, generally the winners don't seek feedback. Why did I get the post? It's, it's why did I not get the post? So uh, that often happens, yeah. Yeah, agreed. It's just, just I, don't think, I don't think you should be thinking in terms of, um, oh, when should I apply? It's just, you know, if you fulfill the criteria, just put the application in, because it's a really good exercise, um, you know, for the future, is to, to look at your CV and, See, okay, you know, where where do I need to go? What do I need to address? Um, so even just even just doing that exercise is, is really helpful, I think, in career development. Yes. So you would advise people to actually look at job descriptions that I would too yeah, uh, yeah. very early on in their career to see where their CV compares to what they're aiming at, and then identify the key points that needs to be developed. Yep. Um, from your experience. Uh, what are the areas that need the more work and that maybe you tend to forget of developing when you're a postdoc? I do think for me, I do think the teaching aspect um, can sometimes be forgotten. Then I'm coming from a lecture education stance. So if someone's coming for an interview 
um, in the School of Nursing, if they have fabulous research um, backgrounds and that's all they focus on, that's going to lose me because I, I want to know, yes, okay, you've got that fabulous research background, but can you go in and teach and can you do it with quality and can you enhance the student um, learning experience? And that's something that I would be mindful of. I, I would agree. I think people here will should have the opportunity to to get some education experience as well as the research experience. I think sometimes we see applications from folk from some of the maybe world's best research institutes who've you know never seen a lecture class, and they'll come in with papers that we would love to be able to hire, but you know we we can't because they haven't done any education, and that was a key criterion. Um, so I think you know it, this isn't about. Uh, having everything the best, but if you contribute in all areas and show you've a rounded profile, you can be a very successful academic. Any other comments on that? Just around teaching, one thing that um, we haven't really talked about so far is, is teaching qualifications. Yes. Um, but I went through, I was lucky enough to go through at a time when, when the university funded postdocs to do the PG Chet course, which is the, the teacher, the higher education training course that's required of all lecturers and um, they don't fund that anymore but now there is um, the postdoc society actually fought very hard to get access to um, the higher education academy's fellowship program which all postdocs are now eligible for um, and if you complete that then that gives a formal recognition of your teaching experience and a qualification that again just speaks to your ability in education when it comes to an application Yes, so that's the Associate Fellowship of yeah. the Higher Education Academy, which yeah. you can get through the Queen's Merit Award uh, developed by the Centre for Educational Development. And you can get it for free as a postdoc. Uh, there's a few uh, courses and an application that you're going to be helped to uh, write. So it's really worth it. Uh, and I guess it shows commitment on the application that you've been interested in teaching and you've put some hours of teaching there and you mm -hmm. looked at how to develop your um, your teaching philosophy or different teaching methods that can be applied. So did you do that too, Donna? Or? Yeah, I had actually started to, to do that. And then when I had submitted my application um, and, and got the, the, the lectureship, um, I hadn't completed it. Um, so now I'm completing the PG Shet course now. So, yeah. Okay, and from your point of view, Aaron, Karen, does that make a difference on the CV? The university is looking more at the Higher Education Authority um, and the academic profiles now would suggest that you should, you know, we, we would expect a lecturer to be um, an associate member or a member of the Higher Education Authority and then that goes up as the posts um, go to higher grades to principal fellow. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's become an expectation that there's some form of evidence around the educational profile. But failing that, I mean, we have to recognise people come from different parts of the world where they haven't had those opportunities. So ultimately, the key thing is teaching experience. Uh, that trumps everything, you know. <clears throat> and uh, so I'm going to go back to research independence, which we described a bit, but I had several questions that were submitted by uh, the audience when they registered at the time. So how can you, as a postdoc, when you're working on your PI's ground, develop your own niche or your own research interests uh, to, to show some uh, research independence? There's no doubt this is a challenge. It's a challenge because quite often the funder expects you to work full-time on that job. The 
PI quite often expects you to work full-time in delivering the outcomes for that grant. So straight away there's a challenge. I think it is the, should be the job of most or all actually PIs to support the career development of people who work for them. Um, so I would say try to assess that pretty quickly uh, from your PIs. Are they supportive of your career development and will they provide you a little bit of bandwidth to do that? If they don't, then there's something wrong. I mean, the institution has now signed up to the 10-day other training narrative, which allows you to do other things. That can be your own research. Clearly, you may have to find small pots of funding, or your PI may, may give you a little bit of funding, if you ask nicely, um, to allow you to do certain things. Um, but that really comes down to you being proactive in that sphere. Yeah, it is possible... Um to you know to try and get you know a bit of work done you know outside of a grant obviously you know you're as a postdoc you are hired to work on a on a given grant that the PI has and you know many of them are very milestone driven you know when you have to report back to the funders i think you can be quite clever and strategic with trying to ascertain you know some pilot data for a fellowship application you know if you're running a particular experiment you know, you could ask the PI, you know, would you mind if I ran an extra two or three samples here? It's for my own work. You know, it's it's not going to add a huge amount of cost. You know, certainly that's what I done. I spoke to my PI at the time and I said, you know, I will do your work, but could I add in an extra couple of histology slides? Could I do this? And there really wasn't um, a major issue. As long as you're delivering on the grant, um, I, I can't see a PI having a, a huge issue now the one thing I will say is yes you've got your 10 days training which you can use but if this is something that you want to pursue and you want to try and get the pilot data you will have to sacrifice some of your own time and by that I mean you know you might have to come in on a weekend to do the work you might have to stay late in the evening to write up the aims and objectives of your fellowship application you will have to do it, and I did do it. I worked over the Easter holidays um, to write up my fellowship application. So, you know, the expectation is that you're going to have to do a lot of it yourself, but there is ways and means of getting data or, or getting um, experiments done. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, but I mean, one kind of easy way to get a bit of independent work done is, um, you know, certainly our school anyway, is always looking for projects to fill honours projects, master's projects and so on. So you can put applications in on your own work for small projects around those and get a pair of hands to spend a bit of time working on those and generate data that you can that you can then use. So that's a good way to do it, I think. Yeah. Thank you. So that's all the questions I had for this part. Is there anything at the panel that you would like to add to this? Be ambitious. So, question from the audience here about uh, how do you, as a panel member, uh, maintain the balance between keeping good candidates or internal candidates that you've nurtured for a long time or, uh, and bringing up new talents? How do you do that? Yeah, there, there is no striking a balance. Uh, the academic positions are filled by the best applicant. If the best applicant is internal, then the internal candidate will get it. If, it's, if they're an external candidate, the external candidate will get it. I think one thing that we do notice is, I think because of a really, relatively unique 
geography, and we don't have many other institutions that are close. Um, we tend to get probably higher volumes of local applicants who haven't moved very far because they've stayed here and stayed at Queen's because there isn't an institution 50 miles down the road. I know there's one on the north coast, but there's not very many to choose from compared to, say, if you're sitting in GB or other parts of Europe. So I think we have, uh, in terms of our numbers, a higher proportion of local NI originated uh, folk. And I think that's why we get, you know, an example like at the table here where we get a large number of the applicants are from here because they have been the best applicants for the job. And a follow-up question also on this. Uh, Donna and Paul, you were internal applicants. Did you think it made it easier for you or was it actually challenging and uh, you had to work kind of against it? I mean, I don't, I don't, think, I don't think from the um, interview and ranking perspective and so the, the mechanics behind how candidates are valued. I don't think there's any difference there. Um, um, I think that it's, it's easier in a way when it comes to, to you know, I've talked about, you know, highlighting how you fit into a department. It's obviously easier if you know the department. That gives you an advantage in that way. Um, I mean, you know, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think... Um one of the first lessons I learned very early on uh, was my first day as a postdoc um, when my former uh, PhD supervisor, who was an excellent PhD supervisor, you know, said to me, now you've got a shelf life. And he said it in, in a comical way, but it actually resonated with me. I, I knew straight off then, you know, you're going to have to be very ambitious and really broaden out the CV beyond a research project. And then I suppose my personal circumstances meant that relocating to anywhere outside Northern Ireland was just not feasible for me. So I had conversations with people about, you know, how I could get a fellowship at the time. And, you know, I was told outright, you, you need to leave Northern Ireland, you have to go. And you just have to be very honest and say, that's not possible for me. So then, you know, that individual looked at my CV again and then said, right, well, you need to be better than the external candidates that will be applying if you're going to stay as an internal candidate. So I think I knew very, very early on that I had to have a very broad CV. I needed to be ambitious. I needed not to fear um, trying to apply for small pots of money or applying for fellowships um, and, and just talking to your colleagues. Um, so in terms of the actual lectureship interview, I, I'm going to be very honest here, I did not think I would get it, even when I was submitting the application. I didn't even think I would get shortlisted. But at the time, I thought this is going to be a brilliant experience for me. I'll get my CV you know, tailored now. Um, I'll get feedback. So when I actually got invited to interview, I, <laughs> I actually near choked and was like, what, really? And then when I seen I had nine days to prepare, I was like, oh, my word, this is never going to work for me. Um, but, you know, I crammed in three mock interviews. I went for it. And I just remember thinking, going in for the interview, you know, just sell yourself in a really positive way. You know, come across enthusiastic, come across, you know, as somebody who's passionate. Smile, even though, you know, your nerves are bouncing in your stomach. You know, you just, 
you just had to go for it. And I didn't come out and think the interview was fantastic. Um, I thought I'd, I'd done a good job at getting myself across in a, in a positive light. And so when I got the phone call, I was astounded. I mean, absolutely astounded to the point where I came off the phone and was thinking, maybe I got the wrong phone call. <laughs> I think what, that, what Paul Donna highlighted is potentially there's a positive and a negative about being an internal candidate. The positive is your knowledge of the internal environment and maybe how you fit better. There is an advantage in being here and knowing that. The disadvantage is you have to prove that you're independent and, and it's harder to demonstrate that you're bringing something new if you're already here. So I think there's pros and cons with both and I think they probably balance each other out. So it's, you know, I think it's a pretty much a level playing field. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it helpful. I think it is fair to say that processes and expectations will differ depending on the university and each individual panel members. But I would sum up this conversation by advising postdocs who want to apply for lectureships to develop their profile, thinking of research outputs, teaching experience, administration, public engagement and grant applications, as well as developing their independence and evidence that they are able to come up with their own research ideas that would complement the research already carried out in the area that they are applying for. We have seen here with Donna and Paul that there are different ways to do that. When it comes to applying, make a very clear CV and cover letter that are tailored to the post specification with sections that are easy to identify and showing evidence of how you are meeting the essential and desirable criteria. Don't forget to ask for feedback from your PI, mentors, colleagues and from the PDC if you are lucky enough to be a postdoc at Queen's. And don't forget, preparation is key. Thanks again for listening and please visit the PDC website for more information on how to get your application reviewed or book a mock interview. You will find all this in the personal support section of go.qub.ac.uk slash cubepdc. And while you're there, go leave us some feedback on the postcards page. Bye.